Hello, welcome to the second roundtable, the third festival dispatch of the 2018 New York Film Festival for Catalyst and Witness, uh, hosted as always by myself, Ryan Swen, along with Dan Malloy. Hello. And this time we have an even larger uh, roundtable and set of far-flung correspondents and participants. Starting with, I'm Forrest Cardaminas, um, F Cardaminas on Twitter. I've written for Mubi and Brooklyn Magazine and some other places. Village Voice, rest in peace. <laughs> rest in peace. Uh, Courtney Duckworth. I'm a film writer for different places. Reverse shot recently, and CG Duckworth on Twitter. I'm Caden uh, Gardner, uh, also under Caden M. Gardner on Twitter. I've written for the film stage and in a couple of other places, including my own site, um, but mostly working as a freelancer. And I was uh, down there for Critics Academy at the New York Film Festival. Um, my name's Jeeva Lang. I'm the culture critic at The Week, and I do some writing for Screen Slate as well here in New York. Hi, I'm uh, Jason Miller. Uh, you probably know me from Twitter, but I've also written for Movie and uh, Brooklyn Magazine. Hi, I'm Kyle Fletcher. Uh, goes Hair K Man on Twitter. I'm a freelance uh, film writer and critic. Um, I was on the last roundtable as well. Uh, sans a cold this time, so hopefully I'll sound better. <laughs> yeah, thank you all for joining us. Uh, and it's, it's a very, very strong panel and uh, thank you for joining all of us and so this time it, the we're recording a day after the closing night gala screenings though there are still some screenings left uh, in fact jiva and forest have to will probably have to leave ha halfway through uh for one one such encore screening but since the festival is more or less at a close uh, for this year i think it would be interesting just to get all of your thoughts on the on this year of NIF at large, uh, starting with you, Forrest. Um, so I didn't see quite as much this year as I have in some years past, but uh, at the same time, I feel like I liked basically everything I saw. Um, I wasn't over the moon necessarily for too much, but um, I feel like it was a pretty strong main slate, especially compared to, I believe, last year, which felt a little middling. Um, I saw a fair amount, actually, <laughs> but... Um... I agree that I wasn't over the moon for a lot. I feel like even the films that I really enjoyed, um, I enjoyed with caveats. Um, but I felt like they had uh, surprising things in common. I mean, looking back and seeing the connections between films is really interesting. Yeah, I sort of agree that um, there was sort of a low floor. There wasn't anything that, um, that was like completely terrible or something that I found myself despising or anything like that um, of what I've seen. Um, but there was a lot to admire. And unfortunately, there were cases where I just felt like I was mostly admiring than outright liking. Uh, but I, there was uh, a lot to like of a few movies. And I definitely would agree with uh, Courtney that there were some sort of patterns that I were noticing of sort of uh, films complementing each other. And uh, there were a couple of ones that I actually would say I really liked and will probably uh, wind up in my end of year list. It's funny. I mean, um, 
I, it's weird to be the one who I feel like was so enthusiastic about the festival. Normally I'm so grouchy about these sorts of things, but I had a really good festival. <laughs> um, I loved a lot of the movies I saw. I mean, two of my favorite working, living filmmakers were included, which is like uh, Nuri Bilgajelan and Be Gone. And I loved both of their movies so much and was so excited to see like new movies by some of my favorite people. Um, and I feel like there was nothing I really, oh, well, I did not like Ray and Liz, like strongly hated that movie. But other than that, I think I like felt very positively about basically everything I saw. Um, I was really impressed by this year's main slate. Yeah, as far as sort of the temperature of the festival, I wasn't able to go to as much as I'd hoped to. Uh, that happens when you don't have a press badge. Um, but I, I still was able to see a number of things and I left out everything I saw was fantastic. But generally speaking, people who've seen a lot of the main slate and other films at, at New York Film Festival have been really, really um, positive for the most part. You know, sometimes there are movies that you're not quite sure that they're there for the quality of the film. They may be there for ancillary reasons, um, but that does not seem to be the case this year. Everything seemed to be um, quite up to snuff, so that was good. Yeah, I mean, uh, forgive me if I'm probably reiterating a bit from last week, but yeah, really just, it seems the consensus on this festival this year is there's just a lot more enthusiasm and a lot more uh, kind of uh, uh, positive feelings, at least towards the main slate compared to last year, where I'd agree, you know, it was a little thin, and you know, there's a lot more U.S. premieres this year, even world premieres. Um, and uh, last year was actually kind of stuff like projections and uh, revivals that were perhaps the most interesting. But this year, the main slate, I think, is uh, really attractive. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't necessarily agree that, you know, I wasn't smitten with anything because there were definitely quite a few ones uh, that really uh, weirdly snuck up on me. And I didn't, you know, I, you know, like I didn't expect to love Burning quite as much as I did, for example, or Osaka 1 and 2. Um, but I really, really enjoy those films, so, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, um, it's a good, a good year, good year for movies. Yeah, um, yeah, so I, I think probably the film that we're most interested in hearing about, um, we have no idea if or when it will ever see the light of day on the other side of the country is, uh, Mariano Vinyas's uh, uh, fourteen-hour journey, yes. La Flor. Uh, I've heard it described many times, and I'm not even going to attempt to try because it is just—it seems truly indescribable. So, um, whoever has seen La Flor, which seems to be like a sort of badge of honor at this point, uh, you know, if you could offer some of your thoughts and impressions, uh, we'd be happy to hear them. Okay, so I've seen it, and I think Forrest has seen it. Is Are we the only one? I have as well. Yeah. Okay, you have. Jiva. And Jiva. Yeah. yeah. Very, a very nice piece uh, for the Should. week, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very informative in that regard. Uh, would you like to attempt to summarize? Try to describe it? Attempt it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or the experience a, too. The experience. That's a whole other just, sort intrinsic of sidebar. The experience of watching it. How did you? How did you watch it? Just out of curiosity. Uh, press. Screening. Oh, you went to the press screen. So that press was over three days. Yeah, there were. It was like uh, the first two, uh, then the third, the episode, the third episode, yeah. which took the whole day. It was like five, five and a half or something. Something. <laughs> yeah. 
five yeah. and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah five, five and or then so. um, yeah. four for six because uh, five and six were the shortest ones. Yeah. Uh, were the last day. There was uh, something in between, but it was like free and free sort of sittings in uh, four days uh, that the press screening sort of set that up as. Uh, so yeah. I have no idea how uh, it was split among the eight uh, segments for the public screenings, and I'm curious about that. But yeah, I watched it as a press screening. Yeah, we watched it all in one go. We did a 14-hour day, and I'm wow. yeah, I know. And I'm like really interested in the way you go into that movie because for me, the first two sections were by far the weakest sections. And I think that if I had seen it in thirds, I would have seen the first third and been like, "There's no way I'm recommitting to this movie." Um, and there's something about like the cumulative experience of watching like into your fifth hour and then into your sixth hour, whatever, where it like really started to like come together for me and kind of like cohere. And it was like that experience of watching it as this bulky giant thing where the director, the director in the movie um, has these sections where he talks like directly to the audience and he'll like kind of interrupt things in these, or maybe they're between episodes. I don't, they're between episodes, right? Yeah. And so he'll kind of come in and talk to you and like make fun of the fact that you're like sitting there watching this really long movie. And so there's something about like that experience of like having sat there for eight hours and him being like, you're still watching this? That was like really fun. Um, but I think like, yeah. again, like I think the first two episodes were like fairly weak and then it got really strong for me towards the back half of the movie. But of course the back half of the movie is seven hours in. But that's kind of why it's so great is because you're literally watching this filmmaker grow in real time I mean I guess it's not real time because for him it was like a eight year ten year thing but yes. the episodes are presented in the order in which they were made so you can see them getting more comfortable mm. with the, the type of camera that they're using for example where it's all pretty like rudimentary stuff in the first episode and then pretty insane by the fifth or the, the fourth rather um, which is a reflexive kind of episode yeah. so and it's like it's a durational experience for you because it was a durational experience for him. Uh, they get more comfortable with the camera. The acting style changes. Um, the entire sort of like it goes from these genre films to this kind of sweeping novelistic, novelistic epic, to this more reflexive meditation on authorship and viewership or readership or whatever you want to call it, and then closes with these really interesting like meta cinematic experiments um so like it's not it has to be the question with the film of this length is always like well does it have to be 14 hours it absolutely has to be 14 hours you can't make this short because it completely would destroy the effect that watching it gives you does it feel akin to other such uh, noted experperiments in cinematic length as or as like a even as dare we say like twin peaks it, it <laughs> return uh, uh, um i actually <laughs> as i was watching this uh did get into lenius's previous film extraordinary stories um great, fi really great, great film yeah a really great it doesn't film, quite also. anticipate the floor but i think it actually can probably best i'm not sure how that was sort of um i know it was did have a small release in North America a few years after its making, but um, right. yeah, and um, yeah. 2011. But I'm not sure how uh, you can really sort of 
uh, sort of compare because he is making five different movies mm. with all these sort of Russian nesting doll sort of structures and mazes he's going through. So it's like not like, say, uh, Miguel Gomez's uh, Arabian Nights, which even if it's broken up into three parts is mm. does have this all overall universal theme. There is a lot of this experimentation in each of these movies where he is testing himself, testing the way we watch things, see things, use language. Like uh, the third ep- episode, which is the longest one, has some of the most bizarre bizarre and funny uh, international dubbing that I've seen in quite a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That included Linus himself uh, <laughs> appearing as a Russian uh, a Russian double agent, triple agent. It gets it gets so convoluted, yeah. convoluted when they go into the spy uh, parts. But um, yeah, it's I had not seen a film by him prior to this, or really know of his work. It does make sense to sort of connect it to a lot of the literature from Argentina and from South America. Mm-hmm. I would say. And because he does definitely seem interested in sort of authorship and sort of the words and communications. His language is so beautiful at certain points. He gets into these sections where he's basically just like, like the narrator is just reading these passages basically. And they're like beautiful. There's one that in particular stands out in my mind where he's talking about a character seeing the Southern Cross for the first time down in Argentina. And it's like, fantastic like listening to it i was like i hope he like writes novels because this is so good just the writing was so good and there were several sections like that where it was like all of a sudden he was just doing a narration and like my jaw was on the floor um like very novelistic in that way yeah and um i would say like the third and fourth episodes are the strongest entries like obviously the third is the most rigorous because it is the longest but to sort of understand the sort of perhaps key change in the whole movie in the whole sort of uh, project uh, you have you have to have that third of ep- that third episode of where all that sort of labor and sort of the length like that by itself took about five years to make according to Linus and once he got over that hump he kind of was able to sort of I don't know some kind of sort of creative emancipation where he felt like he could almost do anything <clears throat> or do it. And the fourth episode, of course, then sort of gets into a kind of a kind of uh, reflexive sort of movie within the movie, which is sort of commenting on the project on the project itself. Yeah. yeah. And kind of in very humorous in ways. In Cinemascope interview, he talked about how the the fourth episode is where he switched from coming up with the words before the images and then in the fourth episode he started yeah. to come up with the image before the word and I think with the third episode which when you say the third and fourth are the strongest for listeners that's about nine hours of the movie <laughs> um, yes. so that's like the vast majority of it but I think the third section yeah. which is really great kind of pushes that words before images mode as far as it can possibly go and then the last three episodes are experimenting with the possibilities of the reverse um with that fourth mm-hmm. that three and a half hour fourth episode being um just sublime and it's the way that it kind of just validates the experience of a reader or a viewer 
um, a reader within the diegetic narrative and kind of implicitly your viewing. Um, and for it to end the way that it does, with just that sort of section of the four actresses, all the films have the same four actresses who um, fans of Matias Pinheiro might recognize from his films. Uh, yep. To just have them walking around <laughs> is like, I don't know, it's such a beautiful and bold way to end that. Yeah. Um, it's a really special film and it doesn't feel to me like the, like out one is kind of like that immaculately plotted thing. Like there are some things that happen very early in out one that don't seem like a big deal. And then by the end, it's like, oh my God, that thing that happened in hour right. three was really, really important. Yeah. There's a revelation about a character yeah, yeah, like yeah. four hours in that's like, holy <laughs> shit, I didn't know that he could do that. Um, and so this doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like, you know, one of the many miniseries that you could think of. It's obviously nothing like Showa to pick another really long movie. Um, so it's, I mean, it's really, Extraordinary Stories, I think, is the closest comparison because they're both kind of enraptured with the possibilities of storytelling and creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sounds very exciting. I hope we can, it can, if maybe not yeah. find distribution, then at least get to our yeah, eyeballs. So. Definitely. So that people yeah. can see it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes, please. Absolutely. Let's move on to another film that's centered around an actress and which takes place in mm-hmm. multiple parts. Jia uh, Junko's <laughs> Actress Pierce White, the film that I was perhaps most excited for going into the festival. And I, if yeah. I'm not yep. mistaken, so, yeah, everyone so. saw it? Or, yeah, everyone saw it. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess everyone can comment on it to one degree or another. Uh, if, yeah, uh, I could, I could like do that. Take the. the um, so, like Zhezhenka's okay. last movie, Mountains Made Apart, uh, this is a triptych narratively. Uh, it's a really great film. Actually, exactly similar running time, and even the length mm-hmm. of each part is actually very comparable to Mountains Made Apart. Uh, it happens in three years. 2001, 2006, and 2017, basically just to be read as present day. Um, and it is basically the story of this right. one couple, the, the, he is sort of a gangster in, in, in his section, and then um, his girlfriend who supports him, and the, the movie is basically what happens in the first section, and then what spirals out and the consequences of that five years down the road and then another ten years down the road. Um, it, it's a... Uh, in, in some ways, personally, if I, could, if I could speak on my own experience, I think that it is in some ways narratively, on a direct level, uh, one of Zhezhenka's best works, if not, if not his most directly linear narrative-wise, maybe his best. Um, I, think, I think every mm-hmm. single person that I talk to agrees that the first section uh, is completely immaculate on a narrative level um, and really just Mm -hmm. functions and hums and is everything that's really great about him. Um, I know the following two-thirds, especially the last third particularly, um, has given people pause, uh, which is, again, given the response that happened to Mountains Made Apart, nothing new, but uh, (laughs) nonetheless, uh, this doesn't have any... uh, lines about Google Translate, if that makes anyone feel better. Um, but no, uh, in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, it is him pushing his style. Uh, it is 
in some ways his most narrative work. You know, you, I, I've seen at least everything mm. platform and beyond, so I've seen everything he's made this millennia. And uh, in terms of that, it, it really is his most narratively driven film. And I think in some ways we're so used to what a Zhazhenka movie is with its sort of sense of dual narratives between, okay, here's the directly immediate melodramatic part and then what does this mean about China in a, in a larger sense? Um, mm-hmm. I think the second part of that is a little harder to figure out this time. Um, but the first part, I think, of that on just a pure melodramatic level is fantastic. Yeah, it, it's intriguing to see Zha Zhangke go from this, like, very explicitly, like, kitchen sink social realist filmmaker really kind of getting uh, the accurate temperature of the sociopolitical climate of, uh, you know, mainland China and now becoming this, like, and not to say that he wasn't a talented formalist before, but really like this, you know, to borrow a word, you used immaculate formula, uh, formalist uh, in a way that like the previous film was such an incredible melodrama and then he takes it to, you know, beyond what you would, you could even suspect, uh, you, you know, it reminds me kind of of like the uh, uh, elements in some Cirque films that feel like they're kind of like almost, you know, ahead of their time in mm-hmm, a sense mm-hmm. like a lot of the things uh, that are confronting the viewer vis-a-vis the their means of like watching the film or engaging with the story um meta textually in a sense um or um uh you know there's a, there's something going on really interestingly in this new film uh that's you know him commenting on his past films but also trying to relate that to the narrative he's always already established because there isn't any semblance of that until the second act and then it, it drops like a sledgehammer yeah. so it is the you know it is a film that i've still even to this day i even though i saw it what three weeks ago now or something two weeks maybe um i'm still kind of grappling with uh n- not even necessarily from like a sociopolitical angle but also like uh, or a contextual angle but also how it exists exactly mm-hmm. in his filmography it's a, it's very interesting to be honest, it's the only of his films that I've seen. He's one of those filmmakers who I've been trying to, been meaning to watch for a long time, and I just, this just happened to be the first one that I got to see, and I was <laughs> so blown away by it. I mean, especially the thing that I'm thinking of now is the actress in it, who I know he collaborates, yes, I know he collaborates with her frequently from, you know, yeah. Googling. Yeah, she has an amazing steeliness. And they're married Especially as well. in um, what I'd call yeah. the last third of the film. And, and in the second third of it, even has like a humor to her. She, yeah. She's very much a chameleon <laughs> in this film in terms of how she progresses over time. But it feels, each progression feels very believable. And um, despite like her relative opacity, like there, there aren't, you know, I don't feel like there are really scenes where she's, describing her motivations, you still are so invested in her as a character and in her journey. I mean, that's that's what I'm thinking of at the time because I just think of her sort of like opaque face and her expression, you know, amazing steely expressions and the fun of when she's dancing to YMCA, which is, you know, not a spoiler, <laughs> yeah. but actually one of yeah, the better dance scene. scenes in the festival. <laughs> 
though. For yeah, sure. It's, okay. it's very easy to, at this point, I feel like overstate, or like it's almost sort of a cliche to be like, Zhao Tao and the new Zhezha Ka film, like, but genuinely, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. genuinely, she, I mean, she's always done that, <laughs> and you know when, when mm-hmm. those two are working together, it's going to be something fantastic. But I, I really think she is on another level here, and, and she carries the film for the whole time. Again, the middle section largely abandons the male character, um, and it's mostly following her for most of the middle section. And she, that part is so fantastic, and what you're right, what she's able to do with just a glare that isn't even overt. It is, it is you would describe it as a neutral expression, but it, it, it shows mm. so much, and it shows how incredible of an actress she is. Not, not even that too. It's uh, even on just a performative level that midsection is incredible. But that that she also has to juggle like intellectually, like that she is in a sense like reliving uh, a role she has already right. portrayed right. in a previous Jajanka film, Still Life, is also like, yeah, it, yeah it's right. it's it's mind bending. I mean, I, I've heard the, you know, a lot of people I think have uh, leveled this. Uh, this comparison but yeah she's kind of like the greatest like silent film actress who never <laughs> like uh, in a way she just has oh. this like very y- oh, y- yeah it's exactly that like she's able to say everything with a single glance but not like you know over you know like not like it's german expressionism but just purely like the duration of the glance or how she moves immediately after that you know she she's clearly she seems like she has such a conscious control of like her the nuances of her movement and performance that it's uh, really incredible yeah uh, speaking of still life I, because these are the first times that he's recreated some of the milieus of of his past films uh, not mm-hmm. only with still life in the middle mm-hmm. section but with unknown pleasures in the first section and I know I know that he switches uh, film mm-hmm. um, film formats uh, throughout the film. I was curious how how does he handle that sense of recreation? Does he capture that atmosphere or, or a similar atmosphere? Or it's an interesting like I it's an interesting question, and I think um, like what really stood out to me when I was watching it is like that middle three gorges section. That's like the section that's most like still life. Um, I think that's the section also where he brings up like UFOs again and like he has UFOs in still life as well. And I can't imagine, I mean, maybe he is just an avid UFO like believer, but like I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine that inclusion like isn't conscious. Like to be putting those two things next to each other again seems so self-aware. Like, um, there are definitely a lot of echoes the entire way through of a lot of his movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to um, do with any of that, though. I mean, so I've I've also se- I've seen problem. everything from platform on, and to be honest, I was kind of let down by this film. Um, I really love all of his work, and I love the first third of this. I think it's some of the most intoxicating filmmaking he's ever done. Um, but I don't really know what's at stake. It certainly doesn't seem to me, and maybe I I could be missing something, obviously, but I don't really see the political commentary in this one and to the extent that I mean it obviously has things from his other films but I don't really know what he's trying to say about his own filmography either like mm-hmm. I noticed this references mm-hmm. um, particularly to still life and of course the similarities to mountains made apart which I think I like more than almost anybody I know I really really love that film but I, I, do, I do too 
I don't. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. But I don't really know what to do. Uh, I don't pro, really know what to do pro with mountains made a part panel here. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of left wanting yes. more, and it's not bad by any means. It's just, I mean, this is one of the great filmmakers of our time, and it, this one leaves me with less than, I guess, the world or mountains or still life or platform. Mm. I was uh, surprised how sort of kinetic it was uh, sort of at the beginning, like Eric Gautier, uh, who's uh, done mm-hmm. uh, work for SAS, uh, Displetion. Cameron Crowe. Yes. I waiting for someone Aloha. in the Aloha. to reveal themselves. Like, um... <laughs> Like um, that no, I, I'm in a, particular yeah. was just like <laughs> really so great, thrilling yeah. and like you didn't it's brutal. so brutal and like I totally thought it could escalate into something worse. Uh, obviously, though, it does escalate into Shatow's uh, uh, character having to sort of take the fall in that case. Um, as far as overall, um, I've seen a good chunk of his stuff after Platform. Platform is probably my favorite of of his work, uh, but I just was very into sort of following uh, Zhao Tao throughout this movie, just sort of the ways she sort of uh, adjusted and was trying to sort of mine her way to trying to get uh, reconciliation with her man who in in turn does not seem to be as interested in her as she is with him and sort of the complications of that uh, I was definitely very much into and sort of the comedy and tragedy of that particularly when they have that very sort of emotional sort of interaction it's like this hand saved my life and it's like you have the wrong hand. I was just, just sort of the brutalness of that and sort of the humor in that I was (laughs) kind of on board with, even if the sort of UFO sort of, uh, the UFO sort of digression, I was (laughs) still kind of confused by. Fair. Uh, But yeah, overall I did like it. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm totally into it, but I was, I, was very into sort of uh, the work by uh, Gatti and Ja on a former level along with Xiao. Yeah. I just have to say, like, you brought up that line about, um, like, I, was it like, I'm not left-handed or how did she say it? Yeah. But, yeah. like, it's one of my favorite lines of the year. And I think, like, so much of that middle section that's, like, almost played like a comedy, like, has some, like, such sharp writing. Like, it's hilarious. Right. And there, there's a, there's a yep. very distended... Um, sequence in a hotel um which is where that line appears which i think is is so fantastic and and is so precise and his blocking is so fantastic with both of them and both of those actors are are really really uh working it um there's just one brief point i'd like to circle back on um which again which is uh, what forrest alluded to which is that he was sort of like i don't really know what to do with this and i myself struggle with that for the last third um the one thing I will say is, again, we're so used to this idea of a Zhezhenka movie being this specific formulation of, okay, what is, what's happening with the characters and then how does that relate to mainland China, what we're talking about. 
This one actually seems more interior. Um, in that, in that, definitely the first two mm -hmm. parts are clearly very sociopolitically uh, involved, and, and I wouldn't say the third is not particularly. Mm -hmm. The the third opens near a train station, and the way he films, uh, the way he films that train area, the empty train station feels almost dystopic than anything that Hollywood could ever produce. But this one seems to be moving more, especially the final third, on a more personal, melodramatic angle. And again, mm -hmm. I, there's a, there's a, I'm not going to really reveal what it is, but there's a shot that's the last shot of the movie that a lot of people sort of immediately jump to the idea of like state surveillance and all of these different things. And in fact, in fact, yeah. I think it has n almost nothing to do with that given the context. Um, and once you sort of realize that, I, I think the movie, that last third of the movie shifts back to the immediate melodrama of, of the, of the whole arc of the movie. Um, and I think that last third is sort of what's caused myself included uh people a lot of trouble yeah the last third is kind of tricky particularly for that sequence or shot that you you were bringing mm -hmm. attention to involving uh i mean let's just call what it is it's a surveillance uh feed and um yeah i i, I it was interesting because like immediately coming out of the theater i was mm -hmm, befuddled mm -hmm. by it honestly and it kind of totally shook up a lot of my uh you know the conceptions I had of the film leading up to that moment, and uh, I wondered if that was kind of an I, I if that was intentional. But um, really, I think it seems more that it's meant to be purely kind of a metaphorical device for for Zhajanka as a storyteller, as opposed to him trying to contextualize that moment in any sort of real sociopolitical right. grounding. Which is what I have gradually grown to really appreciate about the third section. Is yeah, it does seem to reflect this kind of interiority if anything it kind of is really dismal not even because of the fates of the two leads but it just kind of reflects i think at least thematically and uh on on jojanka's career as a filmmaker as well his this it feels like he's kind of disappointed in himself almost or he feels like he's being left behind in a way you know because he is now he is now in a sense and i think he's seemingly pretty aware of this that he is like not at all quite the filmmaker he was around the time of Platform or even the film before that, Sha Wu, which were, you know, uh, made without the permission of the mm -hmm. Chinese government were circulated via bootlegs uh, around the country. Um, and now he is, you know, this... He, he's this, you know, Zhang Yimou character, uh, a, uh, you know, a director that he famously critiqued for kind of, paraphrasing, selling out in a way. Uh, and uh, he's such a such a director that does so much interior processing that I can't imagine he isn't aware of that or trying right. to express that in some manner, particularly when it's so alien, uh, pardon the pun, <laughs> compared to the first and second mm -hmm. part of the, mm -hmm. the, the film. Um, <laughs> really, it's the midsection, I feel, that, if I may just compare it to, like, Mountains Made Apart, like, I, I remember a lot of people were kind of thrown through a loop with the third section taking place in, like... Australia, yeah. Twenty twenty Australia, yeah. Twenty twenty five Australia yeah. or whatever, and it's like slightly like pseudo yeah. like Jetsons <laughs> futuristic like, uh, um, and uh, for me it was like oh no that makes perfect sense you know like that clicks and for this in this case it was really the midsection that kind of threw me through a loop in that yeah to echo what Force was saying I'm not quite sure what he's trying to do re-examining his filmography so directly right there. 
because um, to, to, to bring up that iconography and then kind of leave it hanging there uh, for us to kind of digest and uh, I guess uh, deconstruct is I think more it's it, you know it's just as bold if not more than the uh, parting shot being you know of a surveillance feed and um, yeah I mean uh, you know that, that, that the however though it is perhaps one of the most exceptional uh, uh, sections of the film formally particularly for that hotel sequence that I believe for the most part is like one take like that mm -hmm. conversation mm -hmm. um, and the performances really get to shine through there um, but yeah it is interesting because especially the first section of the film is so like mm -hmm. lucid it is and and I think you asked earlier Ryan like if, it, if there's any comparison to be made to like previous films and yeah I think the first section has a lot more in common with say like the first 1999 section in Mountains Made Apart where it's this like kind of emphatic romanticization of the past where like the colors are lurid and you know like they're so bright the reds pop the blues pop you know there's very obvious juxtaposition right. between like the old and the new or like the rich and the poor like I'm thinking of like when Xiao Tao visits her father who's a working class coal miner on strike and you know he's wearing rags essentially and she's wearing this elaborate kind of like very um modern dress that's mm -hmm. uh, you know clearly costs more than you know his wages um and then you know it, it, i think that transforms in the uh uh midsection into you know something interesting in that he's trying to apply that kind of I don't know how to put this class kind of I guess distinction let's say it that's not exactly what I'm going for in the in it, but applying it to an older film as well especially by having like at one point when they're on the train the main protagonist of still life uh Han San, San Ming who was the uh, minor he's also there but he's seemingly like a middle class right. citizen and it's just a cameo and it's not oh. really drawn attention mm. to but it's you know it's like oh, it's so deliberate that yeah. it does make you think mm -hmm. a little bit uh so it is uh yeah it's a very curious film i wasn't as over the moon about it as i was expecting because he's truly one of my favorite filmmakers and you know i, I you know i wrote my senior thesis on his work as well so i'm you know oh, yeah i love him but this was in a positive way i wasn't like you know head over heels for it in a way that it's kind of i hope maybe down the line it'll click or it won't it'll just be this wonderful kind of mystery among his filmography for me so yeah well uh, I mean it sounds even with people's reservations it sounds fantastic and everything we could hope for from a Ja film so um, just sort of moving a little laterally um, in keeping with uh, Chinese challenging cinema uh, we'd love to hear what people thought of Bigon's second film Long Day's Journey yeah. Into Night um, <laughs> both of us have seen Kylie Blues and are pretty big fans of it so far um, I, I'm very intrigued to hear how how B sort of expands his vision with this film uh, if anyone wants to summarize I'm not quite sure who's seen it on the panel you should probably you, you should I, I think me. we've all seen it most, oh. I think, on the panel. Oh, okay, <laughs> everyone but Jason. You should open it. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I, I know that Jiva and Farsi have to go soon. Yeah, so, um, I so mean, like I love it. The film is kind of divided about. into like halves, the first part and the second mm -hmm. part, which is famously um, in 3D and Some is a single blues. shot, kind of like his like famous scene in Kylie Blues. Um, and I think what was so amazing to me is like you kind of go into the movie, I think, expecting like, oh, when is the 3D part going to start? Like, you know, it's going to be halfway through. And so you're kind of just like waiting for it to begin. But I got so lost in the beginning of the movie. It's just so beautiful. And I don't like the 3D magically is not a gimmick. Like, I think um, kind of that premise seems so like you're just working towards this like show offy. 3D thing and like somehow it all just works so seamlessly. I think one of the like he does this really funny thing where um, the 3D sequence is um, kind of a dream sequence. It stems from somebody falling asleep and when he falls asleep you see like him put on 3D glasses and again like it sounds like <laughs> there's no way it could possibly work and like be serious and like that's the thing I think is so impressive about him is, is just like beautiful filmmaking throughout. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was curious how hearing about the 3D uh, signaling, if it was going to be like Spike Kids 3D, <laughs> or they, uh, they explicitly. Yeah, yeah, they, they, this is they, they, they all but explicit. There's everything but a title card saying, please put on 3D yeah. glasses now. Yeah, yeah please yeah. put them on. That's no, what they do. The beginning of the movie, though, they do say. Uh, you know, put put on your 3D glasses to join our protagonist. Like those are the uh, protagonists. That's very spiky. Well, no, it's like the Francis Ford Coppola movie. It actually bounces <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. around the oh, screen, yeah. informing you when you should tell it. It's fantastic. Something like I love also so much about the execution and um, Long Day's Journey into Night is we stayed for the Q and A afterwards, of course. And one of the things he was talking about, the director, um, was that. Part of the reason why he wanted to use the 3D was to force you to go see the movie in a theater. Um, it's about the communal. It's like about the communal experience of sitting there surrounded by other people who are watching this thing together, and like you kind of get trapped in it because you're like, oh, I've got to go see it in 3D. Like I don't want to see it at home or whatever. Um, and I think the movie just really like speaks to that. I don't know. Yeah, but that's why it's so great is uh, because it's like my other favorite movie, The Festival of the Floor. It's about the glory of movies and watching <laughs> movies and all the great things that happen when you do it. Again, like somebody walks into a theater and like puts on 3D glasses <laughs> and yeah. then there's a title card and then it's a long take. Um, but which... it's... None of which would work if this movie wasn't made by somebody as preternaturally talented as I think Vigan is. Yeah, exactly. This is a really, really wonderfully crafted film. Um, you know, people always want to compare Chinese filmmakers to the contemporaries, and in this case, like, yeah, and like some of the lighting, you can definitely see like Wong Kar Wai circa in the mood for love in there, or Fallen Angels. Um, the other filmmaker who comes to mind is Liu Ye's Purple Butterfly. Um, like, it's a beautiful film on the level of those two. Like, it's just really, really well-crafted. And it, it's just so, it's a, a lot of fun. Like So much fun. It's so much fun. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, especially like, because the... Uh, of course, there's a association between slow cinema and something that's quite uneventful in a way that might be regarded as too serious or... Or po-faced in a certain way, and I, this is the first I've been really here. Yeah, I've really heard about 
Monday's range. Um, we have to go in just a fun. second, but the only other thing Switches. I would like say, just speaking to fun, is um, like the realizations of what you can do with a camera, like during that dream sequence, which is a gymnastic, incredible feat. Like one of the most impressive things about it is he uses like this um, like wild, frisky horse that's like. Um, you know, like you can't plan for that. Like you can't go into that scene being like, we're gonna have the horse go crazy here. And like, you know, that's like 30 minutes into a shot. Like famously, there's the pool ball he has to sink like in a single shot, yeah, like which is like, pressure, yeah. you know, 25 minutes into this shot or 40 minutes in the shot or whatever it is, which is like so yeah. stressful. Um, and like the possibilities of that, like the camera flies at one point and you're like on a zip line at one point and you're like spinning all over and like using the space so creatively and there's fireworks and it's just like one of those things where you're just sitting there like, yes, like this is how it's supposed to be. Love that movie. Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> um, on that note, though, we should get going to maybe my most anticipated of the festival, Jafar Panahi's Three Faces. It's good. Thank you guys for it's having good. us. Yeah, thank you so yes. much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, yeah, thank you for yeah. calling yeah, us uh, you, live from yeah, Lincoln thank you both Center. For so. <laughs> yeah. We've really got a taste of the festival now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. Good talking to you guys. For joining us. See you. It's not ending. You got you have to take us to the movie with you. I mean that that movie three faces begins with uh with a sort of cell phone video. It would be fitting. Yeah. Um yeah, I, well, I don't want to be a downer, uh, but I sort of, after their uh, <laughs> enthusiastic praise of it, but I was sort of disappointed by Long Day's Journey and Tonight. I felt like I was a bigger fan of Kaylee Blues than some other people I talked to who felt that the long take was very pretentious, I guess, for lack of a better word. I didn't find that, that long take as pretentious as other people, and I did think the long take in Long Day's Journey and Tonight worked really well. But it's kind of premised on a first half that I feel is very waterlogged and bogged down in these kinds of repetitive, circuitous scenes between our two characters that aren't very rewarding, um, either either in their obscurity or in a more traditional narrative sense. I mean, I, I really love Nick Pinkerton's review in Reverse Shot, which articulated this very mm -hmm. well in the way that, you know, there are pleasures of a slow cinema and a cinema of being intentionally obscure and withholding information from the audience. But this film, the first half of it at least, sort of lacks that. At the same time, I don't, I don't know how it would work without that sort of uh, contained force that kind of bursts forth in the second half. I feel like the second half needs some kind of, some semi-waterlogged first half in order to work. And so... I, I'm, I'm curious how the, I guess, how the film could have been better. I mean, the second half is beautiful in the way that the 3D, instead of making it feel hyper-real, makes it feel fantastical, where the objects feel sort of separated from each other, like when you're being taken down the zip line. He feels so isolated. Mm -hmm. And uh, other details like that that just felt like 
almost like animation, like um, like Satoshi Kon, or almost like video games. Uh, you know, like environments. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, first-person mm. environments in video games, especially during the scene uh, where characters fly, and you're sort of inhabiting their perspective yeah. because that's the only way the filmic conceit can come off. So. Those influences mm-hmm. were very interesting and made the second half really rewarding and pleasurable. No, yeah, you're you're not alone in uh, kind of a dissenting or disappointed opinion, uh, uh, Courtney. Um, yeah, I, I I honestly came out of it because I was you know kind of I was really in favor of uh, or very partial to Kylie Blues, and it's interesting that they share a very similar bifurcated structure and that it's kind of you know, the long take and then before the long take. And the way I just described it there didn't really feel apparent in Kylie Blues, where the first part of the film felt uh, unique in its own ways, in its own oniric qualities that led to this incredibly lucid, um, you know, uh, constant motion in the uh, in the uh, uh, stream of consciousness kind of... Uh, uh, approach to the second half, but here, unfortunately, by having like the title card appear right before the 3D uh, long take, and um, kind of saving savoring that moment or that section of the film to be, uh, in a way, kind of putting it on a pedestal as like this is you know an integral part of the movie and it will be ongoing for the you know remaining hour runtime, uh, kind of in a way, maybe not nullifies, but it definitely kind of weakens the impact of the previous section of the film, the first hour, which honestly, to me, was far more intriguing and um, just interesting formally to me. Because uh, I think when he's... he it, When uh, Begone is actually cutting around things and doing interesting... Uh, experiments with the uh, structures of uh, uh, linear narrative filmmaking, uh, that's when he's at his best. Unfortunately, I think, in a, in a way, uh, you know, this might be similar to what you were saying, Courtney, in that um, this time there's something a lot more apparently straightforward going on, and that it's kind of clearly a detective, like, in search of a long-lost lead from the past, in, a, in essence, and it'll bring him closer to, you know, kind of a self-realization or, um, you know, a peace of mind, at least. And that becomes apparent quite early on, and so, at least on a storytelling or, well, a plot level and a thematic level, it's kind of stagnant, but just the way it's being told is so interesting, and it's seemingly building to something, uh, you know, perhaps spectacular, perhaps compelling, and I think it attempts that with the one take, and I think on a technical perspective, it's, you know, absolutely fairly impressive, but it doesn't quite have the consistency, let's say, of the uh, long take in, like, Kylie Blues, where it felt truly kind of uh, one uh, with the... uh, previous section of the film and that it was exploring this kind of community that it was kind of talking around and eventually you know the char- the main character was kind of getting towards in his narrations and his uh, uh, kind of exploration of uh, rural China but 
in this case, it, you know, and since it does come off as a dream sequence, it, you know, operates on very different logic compared to the, uh, and, and on a different tone than the uh, first part of the film. And at first it is really kind of, uh, like when they're, they're in this cave, and, or at least the main character is in this cave riding a minecart in, and it, he has to uh, play a ping pong match with a young boy who's believed to be, you know, a ghost. And that part is really striking and I think promises a lot. But then it unfortunately, I think, abandons kind of the unpredictability and uh, excitement of the first act uh, brought on by its kind of oniric, fragmented structure um, by actually being pretty predictable in that um, it's interesting you said you brought up like video games mm -hmm. and that like that's immediately when I thought when they're like oh you need to go past the ruined prison and uh, <laughs> to get to this place and just the, the way ge <laughs> geographically how they're establishing the space is you know in on paper I think very sound and functional but it, it and and for the whole dream logic they're trying to establish there and also the use of doppelgangers is uh, you know quite uh, uh, fitting, but it ultimately, I think, robs that sequence of much of the uh, mystery that permeates the first half, and it's, um, you know, you're still not quite sure exactly what's going on or what it's trying to say, I think that's by nature, but it does feel a little less exciting as a result so yeah it, I, it was something of a disappointment for me where i think it's a very technically impressive film and great to look at and uh begone i think has a lot of natural talent as a filmmaker um though I, I am kind of curious what exactly he was trying to develop here considering it's so structurally similar to his previous film but yet thematically and narratively it's kind of stayed cuddly blues is probably going to end up being one of my favorite films of the decade definitely like one of my favorite debuts in quite some time i definitely do find myself feeling a little disappointed i do want to see it again i probably will never be able to see it in 3d again uh but it is kind of interesting of how the second half it's this sort of uh device that sort of gets us to the 3D is that this is somebody's dream. And I was actually sort of feeling the sort of dream sort of vibe in the first half because there was just something so strange, tedious, uh, weirdly funny in certain ways uh, that was happening in the first half. Like uh, Sylvia Chang makes a special appearance at some point and her introduction is kind of funny she's like doing like a workout in front of a television i think or something <laughs> she, like she, that she's playing dance dance revolution yes oh my yes. god kidding. yeah yeah there's, <laughs> yeah, there's uh, oh boy. ash ash <laughs> white has its sort of sense of humor this one does too in just weirder ways um but i've already sort of felt like i was sort of in a dream in some ways but the second half it is kind of what uh, Kyle and sort of Courtney were sort of talking about, that there just seemed to be 
dreams, but sort of in a sort of order and lo- and and logic that actually felt a little more organized than the first half, even though there are parts of the first half that I, I have to say I just was just sort of felt like I was biding my time waiting for the 3D to happen, for the shot to happen. Um, it's a, But obviously, like the second half, I definitely do prefer and do find it to be very beautiful in parts, like the part where they pretty much fly. I actually felt caught myself sort of gasping when that moment happened of sort of seeing how they were able to do it. But I just find myself, even with distance, feeling a little disappointed by it because I feel like I feel like I just preferred Kali Blues. I preferred the one take in that, and I just felt like uh, with Kali Blues, there was just felt that there was just more explored and this one felt a little sort of tighter and sort of, again, sort of a detective story of sort of connecting certain things mentioned in the first half that do appear or are sort of connected in the second half. Yeah, I would have to sort of be... uh, I would sort of describe myself as being disappointed a bit by it. Uh, Granted, again, I was putting... Uh, this feature up against something that again I think of being like best of the decade work Uh, but I do sort of like some of the strangeness of this but other times I sort of felt like these were sometimes riffs on Andre Tarkovsky at certain points in the movie I'm not sure if anyone sort of was able to sort of uh, see sort of Tarkovsky's sort of riffs like I was, but it does it does have a very the mirror quality to I've it. Heard yeah. that, like, anyways. It feels yeah. like someone kind of racking their brain about like a missing piece of their past or something, you know? Yeah, and that and stalker stalker and mirror sure. coming up for me. Uh but yeah, I'm overall disappointed, even though there are things that I would say I'm incredibly impressed by and am definitely interested in following more of his career going forward. director who's pretty new to feature filmmaking to another. We're very excited to hear about 
Jody Max the Grand Bazaar, which played in projections. <laughs> uh, so, would anyone like to tackle this very wide-ranging film from what I've read about it? I don't know who else has seen it. Courtney and Kyle, have you seen it? I have. I have not. Okay. I, I'm just curious quickly. This isn't the. This isn't the Times Square like exhibition. No, 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 no. no, no. Doing, right? I never That's saw that okay. exhibition. Now I'm disappointed. I yes. never caught it. Unfor- unfortunately, I missed <laughs> it as well. Yeah, no. Um, mm-hmm. So you saw? Yeah, it, I saw the Grand Bazaar, not the exhibition. You... <laughs> no, 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 no. The Grand Bazaar. <laughs> uh, do you want to take? It? Oh, it's such an overwhelming film to summarize. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe you should, and then I'll comment or something. Sure, sure. Um, so, to those who are unfamiliar with uh, Jody Mack's work, she is a avant-garde filmmaker, experimental animator, um, music video artist, musician, whatever. That she has so many labels, and none of them quite fit perfectly, which is what's so exciting about her work. Uh, <laughs> This is something that she's been working on for about four or five years, I believe. Um, it's her first official feature. It's 65 minutes. Um, and it takes place, uh, I believe, over 15, 16 uh, different countries. And it is, generally speaking, animated sequences within larger f- realistic frameworks. So a lot of the movie is uh, blankets... Uh, tapestries, things like this, moving within uh, real spaces, um, not not in studio, quote unquote, spaces um, all over the world. And uh, I, I mean, I, I I totally agree with Courtney that it's like it is so dense. Um, it is it is <laughs> incredible that it is a fleet sixty five minutes because it feels like the discussions around it you could have it are endless. Um, I'm so, I was first taken by how much of a flicker film it really was to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I would say, at least 45 minutes of the movie are really intense, um, rapid animations that almost work as as similar to flicker films. And if you've seen some of her pre- previous work, particularly um, her other work with, with blankets and tapestries, this is going to be familiar. But um, mm. it's it's a movie about the global nature of the world as we live in today and its relationship to labor. So again, there's almost no human beings ever seen in the film, but of course everything that you're seeing are works of labor. You're seeing, you're seeing, you know, tapestries that carry tremendous cultural significance and that are in their own way language. You're seeing there are inserts of, you know, flipping through a book of all the written languages in the world. Uh, I mean, it, it is such a dense text that it is almost overwhelming to know exactly where to start with it. But it is um, monumental and such a continuation of her work in the best possible way. But are, are straddling all of these ideas about global communication and 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 labor and and how we try and process those as we live in today to the point that even the, uh, the there's no actual, uh, she, what she said, she supposedly wanted to use actual pop music. Um, there's no actual recognizable music. It's a lot of her creations, um, morphed oh, in yeah. interesting ways, 
Um, but we've heard about the Skype. I was gonna on. say that the one the one recognizable <laughs> oh. thing is there is they do turn uh, the Skype tune ringing tune into a song, <laughs> a, a full fledged song, and and it. I, I mean, I, I, I've loved her work for a long time, and uh, this was pretty much everything I could have hoped for. Out of everything I've seen at the festival, I would say that it's definitely my favorite. But uh, it's it's such a dense text, and, and I would really recommend people go out, and there's a Cinemascope interview between her and um, filmmaker Blake Williams that is terrific mm-hmm. and really only even starts to scratch the surface of the conversations that you can have over this film that I'm sure will be had over this film. Mm. I, I'm curious uh, from the way you sort of framed it, Jason, it reminds me a bit of uh, Peter Hutton's film at sea, where you sort of get this view of like globalized, you know, the globalization of the world seen through this one, you know, industrial ship. Is there like a single through line that sort of puts that she pursues through the film or is it a bit more scattered than that? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's so all of these ideas are so ever present in the whole work which is why it's sort of hard to hard to begin (laughs) even with with the work because it's like there's never a moment where it's not about labor about about globalization about you know all of these different things i can think of a, a particular sequence that it's um it's it's towels on a on a uh what looked like a work shelf in, in, a, in a factory or something like that. And uh, as you hear, you hear off screen people breathing almost in, you know, it, you hear them breathing in and breathing out. And as it, she's animating uh, these different blankets and things moving up and down as, as if you can see the lungs, uh, you know, inhaling and then exhaling. You know, you never see it. You never see. I don't. I don't even know that there's a single human face in the entire 65 minutes. But there is a notable sequence to people in a country that is clearly not, uh, not in the United States, is abroad, um, where you see people's hands working and building these materials. And and uh. the, I mean, I apologize if I'm I'm almost a little at loss for words. It's been a week now since I've seen it, and it's still hard to contend with it is it is massive in in the greatest sense uh but uh i, I can't i can't help in the grandest sense right one might say <laughs> i think what stood out to me was the sort of supernatural movement of the textiles because it's animated and because you don't really see hands um intervening in the space they sort of move of their own volition and it has a very, I guess, a very eerie effect and sometimes a humorous effect and sometimes it's very moving. I mean, there was one sequence where there are a bunch of sort of tapestries on a chair and they're being sort of pulled up into the darkness, but you don't see what's pulling them and Mm -hmm. it feels very ghostly. Um, There's another where a mirror is swinging across uh, sort of stacks of, of... textiles and and sort of catching them as it swings um and it's just sort of the the way that these things travel beyond the signification that we give them um and take on a life of their own was something that i found very interesting and that i don't see so much in other um 
movies having to deal with globalization. I mean, also, I suppose it invisibilizes the labor that's being performed. And so that in itself is interesting. I feel like the faces you do see are sort of the sides of faces of drivers um, driving trucks. Mm -hmm. And so that has its own kind of resonance, mm -hmm. I think. Um, these people who are, who are transporting it and, you know, you hardly see them at all. Um, mm -hmm. Because the machinery, the cogs of it just sort of move without anyone's real decision it doesn't feel like any conscious decision is even being made because all the apparatus is already in place so that was what i found very mm -hmm. interesting that it that it dealt with yeah i actually uh saw, saw this it's like one of the earliest stuff because i watched it on the screener even before i got down to new york um but before critics comedy or yeah, before Critics Academy, because I was able to get a screener through certain uh, people directly through Film Society on that. But so I watched it on my laptop, which again, not the most unusual way for me to watch Jody Mac, uh, <laughs> who I do love as well. Um, but yeah, I, I was just definitely sort of into, sort of hypnotized in sort of the best sense of sort of again, the sort of flicker effect that uh, I believe Jason sort of talked about uh, in sort of just watching all of these uh, textiles flash before me and um, sort of wondering, like, is there going to be a change? Because, like, the short that she made last year that was at Projections, uh, Wasteland Number 1, Ardent Verdant, um, had that kind of dialectic but also sort of complementary sort of images of the poppy seeds and the computer circuit boards and I remember her talk afterward it's like oh it's not really a dialectic um, I'm sort of talking about sort of things that sort of become sort of a addictions in a way of sort of uh, the drug crisis and also sort of our, the way we are sort of tied to technology and sort of having that sort of She's a person who can sometimes improve sort of hearing them speak about their own works afterwards, and I very much do regret not hearing her sort of talk after this, but I was definitely sort of enthralled and, and sort of with this uh, when I was watching it on my computer screen, and I can't imagine how great it would have been to sort of watch it on a 16-millimeter uh, print that it was being is, shown is that in. the format it played on yes i was yeah. curious yes oh, okay yeah. okay and in yeah fact, oh, that's... at my screening um the audio went out uh and, in, and in true for, for only about a minute minute and a half but in true jody mac fashion <laughs> she stood at the back of the uh she stood at the back of the auditorium and made the sound effects that she felt were most appropriate it was like beatboxing uh, basically <laughs> Right, right, right. She was oh making like sound effects uh, to the to the point where I'm like, was this intentional? Yeah. Like I was like, yeah. has she has she planted people all across the theater in an effort to throw us off? Like, is this a you know? Um, but I th I think that speaks to how preternaturally delightful and exuberant her work is, and, and, and I mean, of course, I would totally recommend anyone look up any interviews they can find and post film Q and A's because she is fantastic at talking about her own work. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I mean, we constantly refer to it as this like very dense text. And yet at the same time, I, I can think of no time I, I 
was more exhilarated in the cinema in a while since since I after watching that and and uh, it is as all of her movies are funny in its own way and incredibly earnest and sweet but also so decisively intelligent um, that I, I cannot just recommend it enough that even if this is literally your first experience with Jodie Mack if you even are moderately interested in uh, avant-garde filmmaking or, or what we've said sounds interesting I highly encourage you to search out her work and particularly this film and I also want to recommend um, uh, Jason brought up uh, her interview with uh, Blake Williams on movie. I also recommend her interview with Leo Goldsmith for Brooklyn Rail magazine, which also is insightful of sort of what she decided to include and what she decided not to include. Like I believe there was going to be a lot more narration she intended, but then she just decided to again sort of build more on sort of the effects and sort of the ambience of what she was doing and also of course uh of course the skype tone song <laughs> as well yeah, i'd like to ask as someone who hasn't seen the film but is quite partial to jody mack as well is what is our expected the next time the public or anyone can see this film anyways is hmm. who's distributing it no idea I don't, as of now, I know that it does not have distribution to my, the best of my understanding. Um, that being said, I do see this in a world where, you know, Behemoth got a, a, a two-week run at Metrograph. That this is, this is absolutely something that I think if, I think the viewing public would be open to. I know it is rare that avant-garde or avant-garde feature-length films really get distributed in in a way that that we would like i'm sure but this is something that i i could not see uh a, a ge more general audience having some level of i heard Fingers i heard that uh, they had to add extra screenings <laughs> so maybe that gives some hope oh. yeah yeah it, it played because it, it of played demand today. so hopefully that bodes well it's good news yeah <laughs> A twenty four is next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the merch people. Yeah, it would uh, be her mom's posters or <laughs> all that. Yeah. Uh, moving, uh, moving not to a twenty four film, but a film by a director who used to be uh, with A twenty four, Barry Jenkins's "If Beale Street Could Talk," mm -hmm. uh, very, very widely anticipated, and it sounds. Fantastic. I'd love to hear any of your thoughts. First of all, were any of you at the Apollo Theater premiere? No, I was at the press screening, which oh, was okay, crowded awesome. and packed, and I saw Armour and White for the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure he hated it. <laughs> who knows? He, he's, he was there the whole, the whole movie, so who knows? <laughs> oh, I, he's a glutton for punishment. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, that was... Uh, not my first time seeing him, but uh, I, I I still can't pick him out from the crowd. But uh, yeah, no, it was interesting to see him there. Uh, but no, no, I was likewise at that screening, and it was probably the most attended. Yes. Next to Orson Welles's, uh, you know, other side of the wind. Oh, yes. Um, right. Yeah. So it, no, yeah, I mean, I was going to joke, you know, a better title would be if a movie could make me cry because it's it will make you cry. Uh, it's. Probably, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else this year that like really 
just struck me so so emotionally uh, mm. like in, in such a direct way you know where it's like I wanted to weep you know after watching <laughs> it um, you know like burning you know got me in an emotional way but not really like I want to cry after this is more like a, I feel like jumping off a bridge uh, but, <laughs> oh. um, uh, no but no this film is fantastic because honestly um, you know I wasn't really too hot on Moonlight and it was a bit too derivative for, for my tastes but nonetheless I came out of it like I and I have this feeling with certain filmmakers where it's like I can't wait to see what that guy does next because he's just everything right. about this screams right. like this guy is really smart and knows exactly what he's doing and you know I can't wait to see him like maybe work on something that he hasn't been working on for like you know five years so he's too attached right. to it in a way because mm -hmm. um, it had that quality of Moonlight but this one it, it feels pretty chalk even though he uh clearly has a fondness for James Baldwin and his writing, uh, um, as do I, it really, because um, I just recently began reading um, If Beale Street, uh, actually, uh, on my own, because it's one of the few Baldwin I have not read still, and it, I think, definitely goes into, uh, well, he expands upon the material in really interesting and unique ways uh, I mean I think a lot of people have kind of addressed the really fantastic sequence part way through the film where uh, the main character is he's a sculptor and he's like doing one of his wood carvings and um, it's all in like that you know emphatic slow motion with uh, him smoking a cigarette so you know you have that like, kind of long car why you know smoke trails just like lingering in the air and kind of becoming their own part of the mise-en-scene in a way as the camera revolves around it and it's you know there's the soundtrack going as well and it's uh, the score going and it's really breathtaking and you know I think there's a similar moment in Moonlight where it just didn't feel quite as sui genre it kind of felt more like it felt too Wong Kar Wai in a way like derivative I mean he literally used the song from Happy Together in Moonlight Right. Uh, but this one is really, it feels like, I hate to make this like judgment of filmmakers because I'm in no place to do so. And it's also, I think, kind of, uh, you know, uh, trying to find some sort of intent within the, the, the filmmaking. But um, it feels just more mature. Like, it really feels that he sat with this and really was more interested in not just how he could, like, visually portray the story in an interesting way, but also... Uh, how he could convey that through inventive blocking and, you know, incredible chemistry uh, between his actors and performances. Like, uh, it's interesting, I think, Jenkins is often forefronted as a very visual filmmaker, but in this film what really struck me wasn't the visual flourishes, but was his command of uh, blocking and getting his actors to, you know, bear themselves uh, and be so vulnerable that is unlike for a lot of these actors, you know, how you've ever seen them. I mean, uh, Regina King is absolutely phenomenal and it's, and it's, you know, about time that she's, uh, uh, you know, kind of received this attention. You know, uh, I remember, you know, I'm the, the leftovers guy. So I remember back when like the leftovers was playing, like Regina King is great. Please put her in more things. And fortunately it seems Barry Jenkins knew that long before even I did. 
and uh, you know she she's absolutely astonishing in it, and that's not to say you know like Brian Tyree Henry, who's best mm-hmm. known from Atlanta, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, seemingly a lot of things now, um, has essentially a one scene wonder uh, part in the movie, and he just steals it like he's he essentially has a monologue that's just so incredible and uh, deeply deeply saddening that it's it's really fantastic especially because it's preceded by perhaps one of the most joyful like carefree sections of the film where they just meet on the street and it's like hey i didn't know you got out of prison they share some beers and cigarettes and stuff and it's like you know they've you know never been apart they're old buddies and then and then he goes into this long you know monologue about his experience in jail as a black man uh, you know, in uh, mid twentieth century America, and the horrors he had to face, and it's astonishing how he can uh, Jenkins can balance that tone, uh, those tones so well. So yeah, it's really fantastic. Uh, I was really kind of uh, blown away by it. I definitely sort of have a attachment to Moonlight, where I realize I probably have to leave that at the door when watching this because I think comparing. Uh, both of them for me would have just been a fool's errand and I'm glad I did that because I do I do like this movie a lot but it did take me some time to sort of get into that which I, uh, actually to go back to Moonlight uh, it actually did also take me some time to sort of get my feet wet and to sort of feel like I was in the movie and once I was I was sort of slack jawed and felt like felt a very emotional experience with this one though um, it definitely feels like you're sort of seeing a director sort of test sort of what he can do and sort of see what he can do in sort of telling a love story that also is sort of tied to so much social significance of the period um Obviously, there are these sort of uh, the voiceover by Kiki Lane, which again is part of Baldwin's novel, which I haven't read and probably will get to reading soon, of sort of talking about sort of the context and sort of the situation of sort of why her boyfriend, Fawny, uh, got arrested and accused and breaking down sort of logistically why he is actually innocent and why it would have been impossible for him to commit the crime. I really sort of liked that sort of procedural aspect in the storytelling uh, when doing that. And I also like that uh, there were moments in the movie where you see characters say and do things that are not necessarily the best things that serve them in the story. Like, uh, there's a scene with uh, Regina King and uh, the victim of the sexual assault later on in the movie, which Mm -hmm. is genuinely upsetting. And they're walking a thin line, but you kind of see the friction going on in their interactions, and you feel like this is not going to end well, but you can totally sort of see Regina King's side, and you can also see uh, the, that character's side, which I believe is played by Emily Rios, who was in Breaking Bad, uh, yep. which is, um, and it's really heartrending of what happens, but again, you're seeing characters who you 
you like and are rooting for not necessarily doing or saying the things that that would serve them the best. And I actually thought Jenkins sort of was able to sort of balance that very well. Um, and I'm really surprised looking back that Brian Ter- Tyree Henry was essentially in one scene of the movie because once he enters, and I definitely believe this sort of did help me sort of situate myself because uh, I was more interested in Kiki Lane's character for most of the movie, and it took me a while to get sort of Stefan into Stefan James's shoes, and Brian Tyree Henry's character actually helped me in that way. Mm-hmm. And sort of the fact that he only had one scene, and once you, he enters, it feels like he's always been a part of the movie. And sort of what he represents in the movie, of course, is also the sort of incarceration aspect that is sort of haunting the movie in a lot of ways. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely think it's really beautiful. I think uh, James Laxton, uh, who, again, he reunites with uh, Jenkins after Moonlight, they definitely are able to sort of frame uh, people and spaces, and it looks like some of the most beautiful stuff you've ever seen. And um, Nicholas Bertel, like, it's so beautiful, the score as well. And so different from Moonlight in a lot of ways, but very, again, sort of operatic in ways that we're not quite used to, even though there is sort of a jazz vein in this movie. Um, So I definitely did like it. It did take me some time to sort of get acclimated into the story being told, but it is extremely beautiful, and that definitely makes me want to read uh, Baldwin's novel. Yeah, very excited. It's coming out, I think, in a month or so. Yeah. Uh, Sounds... Yeah, I actually read the novel if Beale Street could talk for a class I was taking at the time that Moonlight came out and after seeing Moonlight I thought that guy would be a great guy to do a Baldwin novel. Maybe if Beale Street yeah. could talk and then like <laughs> it was announced a, a few months later I think maybe after the Oscars I can't quite remember but uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, and we're winding fairly close to the end of time uh, but we'd love to hear uh, each of you talk about a film that whether it, you just think it's really amazing or if it's something that you think is being under-discussed or will be underseen and you just really want to talk about it. Uh, so I'd love to hear each of you talk. I think any anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I was sort of wowed by Happy as Lazaro. I don't think it's a perfect film yes. by any means. And I think the second half in the way that a lot of other main plate films have had structural problems, the second half suffers, uh, whereas the first is really strong. But I think, you know, it, it it's so beautiful as a sort of magical realist fable. The lead actor is an unprofessional who gives a really incredible performance, a guileless performance as this sort of wholly innocent uh, peasant in this Italian village where... Um, it's run by uh, a marquise, and she sort of controls these peasant sharecroppers. Um, it infuses supernatural elements in a way that feels seamless and makes you wonder if they truly are supernatural, um, such as when the peasants are blowing wind and it, the wind is taken up uh, and blows their sort of overlords um and for the same reason i liked asako one and two 
which I felt like was another film that very interestingly combined elements that, in that one, you can take it very straightforwardly as realism, but it has these elements that feel like they're begging for some kind of outside supernatural explanation or some kind of uh, sort of, there's some mysterious narrative structure at work, and it really feels the way that we sort of see our own lives, where the miracles that happen to us are are real. <laughs> Uh, you know, someone who looks identical can return and and it can never be explained and it can just have this sort of miraculous feeling. So those are the those are two films I, I wish more people would see, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Happy as Last was coming to Netflix, I think, in a month or so. Uh, very excited for that. And Asaka wanted to, I think it's Grasshopper next year. And that's definitely one of my experiences oh. from the slate, uh, for sure. Okay, so my favorites. Um, well, I was uh, really taken with Lee Chang Dong's Burning. Um, um, like, I haven't read the original uh, Murakami uh, story this was based on, but I was definitely into it as far as sort of being this mystery uh, that's definitely uh, novelistic of sort of trying to figure out sort of the mysteries of sort of interpersonal relationships and uh, sort of perhaps commentary on Korea itself in uh, contemporary time. Uh, extremely well-performed. Um, when that elevator of the elevator to the gallows uh, score by uh, Miles Davis happens during the magic hour scene, like... I am like totally. Oh, that was that. I'm sorry. Like I just, I totally cannot put my finger on it. That's what it is. Okay. Yes, it's it's. I'm like totally in with this movie the rest of the way. Um, I have heard read a lot of sort of critiques on sort of the way gender is handled, and sort of the fact that this is sort of a sad sack dude, uh, as uh, the sort of uh, protagonist who you definitely get a sense of a lot of sexual frustration in ways where I am not going to get explicit about, but the movie does quite give you sort of a visual insight into that. Uh, but um, I definitely was really into it, and it's, it's de I would say, very different from the Lee's that I've seen, um, the Lee Chang Dong films that I've seen. A lot of his other works are sort of do play a little more social in social realism, a little, but also are talking about religion and also do have a lot of sort of magical realist touches. But this one, it just does seem a little more heightened and sort of a genre piece in a way of sort of just sort of the drama and thriller of it all. But I definitely was really into it and really loved all three performances and what they gave and sort of almost casualness, but then it definitely does build up to a certain point. And uh, I'm not going to reveal anything further than that, but I really liked it. And uh, I have no idea if it's going to play up here around Upstate, but I hope it does, because I definitely want to see it again. It's a well-go, so it's probably going to be in more theaters than you would imagine it being. <laughs> Not to mention, it is shortlisted for the Academy Awards, too. Right. So, I mean, right. 
Yeah, hopefully this time uh, Korea learns that their more popular titles in the West are actually something that people want and are rooting for them to make better decisions on. (laughs) Uh, So hopefully uh, that uh, is possible. And I'm sure Stephen Yoon being of the three principles also helps it. Uh, That's what I was going to say. Is like I never thought I would feel this way or say this, but thank God for The Walking Dead, and then it might get this, yeah. movie, it might, <laughs> it might get this movie like in more theaters just because of that. And he's so and he's so good. <laughs> and, oh, he's incredible. He's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I definitely really like that. And it was kind of the movie I was kind of waiting to have a kind of uh, sort of love and surprise about loving, then sort of guarded respect that I've had for a lot of them. Like, I knew I was going to love the Orson Welles and the Hongs, but this one was a pleasant surprise. I'm going to throw my hat in for burning him. I, I think it's been spoken at length uh, in the in the last round table, so I'm uh, going to spare longer thoughts on it. Uh, I do really enjoy it. Uh, I, I am still a little bit more reserved on certain things when it comes to definitely when it... Uh, it's, it's way about both sexuality and gender is fascinating in of itself and also almost seems like it's from a different movie. Um, or, 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 you know, uh, maybe I just wish it was to some degree because I think those are some of the weaker parts. But I just want to say that it is uh, narratively quite incredible, actually. And uh, I was really surprised by how quietly simple the, the film appears at first and there's a way of summarizing its plot that is probably about 25 seconds um but but i am very very happy that it is two and a half hours long i would did not know that going in uh and i was like where is this movie going um and and that sense of exciting bewilderment uh continued for pretty much until the last two minutes of the movie, you know, um, and, and I, I really recommend people check that out. I, I'm not quite as sold on everything it's laying down, but uh, I, even just for where it goes narratively and, and uh, how different this is from every other Lee Chang Dong film, uh, in some ways it's similar, but in a lot, in most ways it's, it's very different. And yeah, all, the, all three principles are, are fantastic. Um, Arit spoke at length about the uh, Simon Lang film Your Face on the last podcast. I think he did right. a pretty good job with that. Um, I would just say that it feels like at this point that more or less every Simon Lang is, is pretty important. And, and even this as minor yep. in some sense as it feels uh, is fascinating and, and interesting. And I really recommend uh, people checking out if they get the chance. I already singled out Burning last time, and so I'm not going to linger on it for a moment. But just to double down on what uh, Jason and Caden have already said, um, yeah, I mean, it's really fantastic, and I'm kind of hopeful that it might uh, seemingly, perhaps along with, like, High Life, be kind of this maybe movie that will take art houses by storm, it seems. That's uh, what I'm yeah. hopeful for, because it seems like it has entryway. It, both of those films have kind of an entryway into... Mm-hmm. Um, art house cinema that uh, previously didn't provide, perhaps just because of its principal casting, but also I think they have very approachable premises. But um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that film on a script level, I think, is so immaculate. Like, it, I honestly, like, I had the feeling of when I was, like, 13 or 14 years old when I first started to get into, like, art house cinema and, like, every movie I saw, because I didn't, I wasn't really fully aware of a lot of, like, the recurring structures or stories that are being told, like, even a Hanukkah movie or something like cache was like kind of remarkable at a young age just purely because it was so surprising (laughs) and like i never thought a movie could go to such depths or to such like specificity in a way and that's how i felt what while also being thoroughly like surprised like where it's like oh i think this is where it's going it's like no it takes a veers left like (laughs) all of a sudden and this one does that in a lot more i think you know it's a bit it's subtler it's so I'd say, uh, regardless of any qualms anyone might have, more respectful than Hanukkah can ever be. But um, <laughs> uh, nonetheless, yeah, it's a film that I think I think I might have said this last time. It is best going as cold or unknowing as you possibly can into it because um, and don't feel ashamed because and I'm gonna say this here if you know that you know one of the characters likes burning greenhouses because that's not even the half of it you know like that's not even <laughs> close to the mysteries uh, or the depths that you plumb in that film um uh but anyway yeah i'm gonna actually go back to uh something actually courtney singled out which is uh asako one and two which is really phenomenal, yes. I think. Um, and interestingly, I might be one of the few people here who hasn't seen Happy Hour yet, even though I remember actually last Niff being on Jason's couch <laughs> and talking to him, <laughs> talking to him and Stephen Chow, uh, Shin Bowie on Twitter uh, about uh, come back, Shin Bowie. I know, yeah, please. Yes, come back. We miss you, buddy. Yeah. Um, about how like they were just like you know over the moon about it and saying how fantastic it is and. I'm, I should really watch this but like most four and five hour films i will probably push it off until the last you know moment uh i do want to get around to it now especially having seen osaka one and two and from what i've heard you know what i've talked uh, i've talked to some people who have seen it it is formally and kind of thematically simpatico with that previous film of his and i know his background is primarily as a documentarian and uh like researcher so um it's interesting that this movie is a, very clearly a melodrama, and it's perhaps one of the best ones I've seen in years, but it has such an interesting specificity to kind of what, I guess, like, the current state of affairs or sociopolitical situation in China is, or, no, sorry, excuse me, Japan is, um, uh, it's very interesting, and it doesn't make put that at quite the forefront, but this kind of growing anonymity that the working class and uh, I suppose middle class of Japan are kind of feeling is turned into this fascinating yarn of you know doppelgangers or you know lookalikes in a way and I went into it you know knowing that that was a part of it as the title suggests but I was actually you know taking it quite literally and that I thought Asako is the one that is recurring but in fact is actually another character who is uh, you know, one person and then reappears if the same actor playing a different character and, uh, you know, the story plays with that. And uh, that was really surprising. But where it goes, I thought, was really interesting because it isn't really focused on the psychology 
or the or really just even the logistics of that kind of situation at all. Uh, mm-hmm. It's more interested in kind of just emotionally how these characters are able, particularly the you know main character Asako, uh, is able to deal with this kind of uh, situation of you know you're madly in love with one person and they disappear one day and then one day they seemingly reappear, but it's a totally, literally different person. Um, and, um, I, you know, once it got to that point, I was expecting something a bit more intellectual or something focusing, you know, uh, kind of, uh, ontologically on like the nature of, you know, identity and, you know, uh, how relationships, you know, you can kind of carry into them, uh, into future relationships, you know, feelings or, behaviors from previous ones and uh, while i do think those are definitely a part of it it's really more focused i think on the emotional state of the main characters and ultimately it leads to this incredible moment towards the end of the film in the climax where a character makes a very brash uh, sudden decision that even it's kind of one of those moments almost where like even people in the theater i think were like i heard them like kind of grunt or be like no like you know it's like it's one of those films that gets you so emotionally invested by the end you know you're kind of like so in tune with the characters that when you know when they make a bad decision or when you know they're about to make a poor decision you're like this no like don't do it you know like you know better or i know better but um yeah and i mean it's uh you know i've honestly been thinking about this in a while too it's kind of so brilliant too to have this it's modest but it is kind of in a way the scale of it is kind of fantastic in the way that burning say for example uses duration uh to like really milk the suspense as much as it possibly can here it uses um duration in the sense of time passing and years going by and you know relationships developing and you know people getting closer and eventually you know they like want to get married and you know they can have babies and stuff like that um is used really interesting as a formal uh construct within the film um and it's interesting that all of it is kicked off from this seemingly frivolous somewhat in real time prologue section uh, where the two mains meet purely because of some kids incidentally playing with fireworks and it's you know portrayed visually as this incredible like uh, motion that's captured in slow motion that you know immediately kind of announces that this is going to be perhaps the most important moment of both of these characters lives and certainly for the duration of the film and um I think it's little moments like that, these uh, these little um, kind of privileged moments, uh, as Truffaut would have called them, that are kind of dr- dropped throughout the film, and uh, uh, you know you don't really see them coming, but yet when they happen, they really kind of elicit a very strong emotional reaction, even though you might not even necessarily understand what's going on internally for the characters that is the hallmark of a really fantastic filmmaker and um well i've heard there are melodramatic elements to uh happy hour uh it does make me excited to see whichever direction uh hamaguchi goes in whether it be you know towards more kind of pseudo hybrid documentary fiction features like happy hour or explicit you know linear narrative um uh melodramas or genre pictures 
like this one. So, yeah, I do hope Asaka 1 and 2 makes it to other audiences, even though I, I've i heard Hamaguchi talk about the Japanese title of the film, which sounds a bit more fitting for it, at least, or it sounds more eloquent, at least, even though he has said, like, no, he thought out the English title, title himself and believes it is also representative of, like, what he's trying to go for in the film. It does, I think, kind of present a immediate quandary to the film goer where it's like am i missing something or like am you know it's immediately kind of confrontational where it's like am i expecting a long film am i expecting something so i am curious to see how the general public responds to it once it uh, gets a wider release yeah definitely yeah uh yeah this... sounds like it'll destroy me <laughs> yes yeah. probably it's also there's a cute cat a very, a very charismatic oh, yeah. cat. <laughs> Perfect. A lot yeah, more for to your do consideration, for, for yes. sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the comparison I thought of immediately when I read the description was something like Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Journey to the Shore meets Hong Sang Su's Yourself and Yours, and it sounds like oh, boy. It, it somehow lives up to those expectations. Such a specific sure. set of yes, of, of cinephilic. <laughs> yeah. Weirdly enough, though, references. I don't think it has a like cynical bone in its body, which is refreshing oh, for it. Which is really yeah, nice. Yeah. Like you know, I was mm -hmm. expecting something a bit, uh, particularly just at least maybe this generalization, but a lot of Japanese film as of late, <laughs> like even Kurosawa, who I adore, like can be quite, you know maybe not cynical but he's very like i think sarcastic uh, about like I mean, right. i'm thinking yeah, of definitely. like um god what was last year's film uh what vanish uh, yeah before we before vanish. we vanish that's what it is yeah, yeah like that film's very funny in that regard um um but no this film is i think through and through like a very even though it goes on conventional directions a straight melodrama in terms of emotional register and you know where you'll be at the beginning of the film and where you'll end up in the middle and by the end um which i think really keeps you attached and why you know perhaps we had people in the audience kind of audibly you know reacting to uh to twists and turns in the plot which uh, i think uh, shows that it is you know very much a film that you'll immediately respond to uh whether you like it or not which is i think a good thing yeah that seems like as good a place to end as any uh thank thank all of you for being so articulate and so thank you game for <laughs> consenting to be on our odd round table our reporting from afar even though we're not actually there <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you for uh yeah indulging our fascination <laughs> at this festival yes of course thanks for having me yeah. thank you yeah yeah. yeah. Take care, everyone. Yeah. Take care. Uh, and you too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to the listener for bearing oh, yeah. with us. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. For also indulging yeah. our <laughs> <laughs> weird yeah. interests. Uh, and uh, we'll see you on the next uh, main. Like we're, our, this concludes our festival dispatches for 2018. We'll s uh, resume them again, of course, when the time comes in 2019. Uh, and I guess we'll and we'll see you next time on our main episodes. Yeah. Uh, thank you all again. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you.